Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show. Well, hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show. We're your happy host, your happy traveling host, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are broadcasting from our studio near uh, the nation's capital, just right outside our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And indeed, we've got a jam-packed show lined up today. We are going to kick things off with Kate Hanai, the founder of the Coalition for an Airline Passenger's Bill of Rights, and she's going to join us in just a moment to talk about the latest legislative developments on getting passengers more laws to support them when they're stuck on their planes around the country. Like six hours stuck on Yeah, six hours, nine hours. It's getting kind of crazy out there. (laughs) And from there, we're going to talk to business coach and best-selling author Libby Gill. She's a former Hollywood executive who helped uh, Dr. Phil launch his show, and she's going to join us to talk about another way of traveling, traveling hopefully, and get some insights into a brand new book she has coming out. And lastly, international action star Chuck Johnson will join us to discuss his life in Japan and what it means to be an African-American there and building some of those cultural bridges. So if you And we wanted to share with you guys, we have a brand new website address. The old one still works, but we thought this one was easier, and that's Travel N Radio. Travel N, like the letter N, as in nancyradio.com. And when you visit us on our website, you can also join... In- all of our social networks. We're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Plaxo. Too many to count. You name it. And it's <laughs> and it's growing. I think there's about 60 social network sites out there. So How we're many starting- followers are we up to, dear? Oh, well, we have uh, we have quite a few followers, uh, almost 4,000 Twitter followers, okay. tons of Facebook uh, fans and uh, my own personal uh, friends. So, you know, we're, we're growing. We're getting the information out there to you guys, and including our newsletter. And you can sign up for our newsletter on our website, travelnradio.com, and uh, receive weekly great traveling deals. These are last-minute, generally last-minute deals that uh, we're sending out on a weekly basis in addition to our newsletter. So we hope to see you there on our website. And, you know, we have... Um, new season and we're starting new travel segments. Um, We're going to talk more about those things that reflect our values like ecotourism, travel philanthropy, volunteerism. Um, We'll have an author's corner as as we will highlight today, Um, travel tips and deals and legislative updates. And speaking of which, honey, our first guest has a legislative update for us. In fact, she does. In fact, we're happy to have Kate Hanai of the uh, of the foundation, the Coalition for an Airline Passenger's Bill of Rights. And she's joining us right now to uh, update how things are going on the legislative front. Uh, Kate, welcome to Traveling On, or welcome back, I should say. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're, uh, we're very excited to be on your show again. Yes, yes. I know uh, this issue started in earnest with you back in 2006 after your family was flying from San Francisco to Dallas and found itself diverted to Austin, Texas, where you were stuck on a plane for nine hours without food, water, or any information. And uh, this led you to where we are today. Now, we had you on our show about 
one and a half years ago. How have things changed? What's happening in the legislative marketplace, so to speak, and how is the organization doing right now? Well, you know, uh, I'm grateful and thankful to say our organization is growing leaps and bounds. We have 27,000 members. Uh, We have legislation on both the House and the Senate sides of the government, and also with the change in administration, um, what many people may not be aware of is that uh, President Obama, as a senator, was an original co-sponsor of the Senator Boxer and Senator Snow language in the last Congress, Mm. so was Biden, so was Hillary Clinton, and so was Rahm Emanuel on the House side. So there's a great deal of awareness on their part about this issue, and there's a commitment on their part to make sure that something gets done. Now, that said, the Senate is moving slowly, as they do, and so where we are is our House version of the bill has been passed. It's a very watered-down version of the bill, but it has been passed, and the Senate has passed our bill unanimously out of the Commerce Committee. Mm -hmm. Right now it's stuck in um, the Finance Committee, not for our reasons, but because we are part of a larger bill that has um, some financial issues in it that have to be settled. So where we are is um, our, our champions, Senator Barbara Boxer and Senator Olympia Snow, are working right now to attempt to add our language to any extension that may happen of the FAA bill, which has to happen on September 30th. And if that happens, we will have a law immediately, and it will go into perpetuity. I also have been made aware by their offices in the last 24 hours, they are attempting to add us to several other bills that are must-pass bills within the next week or two in an attempt to get this done now for the passengers. You know, I, I'm impressed, Kate, and, and you know, on, on one hand, I, I'm thinking you were on our show a year and a half ago. We actually uh, sang with you a, a tune because, you know, you sent us a CD of yeah. uh, music <laughs> with your band, the Mohown, Motown uh your Motown band, and yeah. uh, and I'm thinking, you know, but geez, within the last couple of months, how many incidents of people being stuck on the tarmac for six hours, nine hours, and I know you were on CNN um, and, and MSNBC and, you know, all the major networks recently because of the, uh, the re- recent, you know, Continental Express Jet uh, debacle. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so yeah. on one hand, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I wish I, you know, I, I'm surprised that it's taken this long. Um, on the other hand, I'm happy to see uh, some, you know, some, I guess, versions of of your ideal bill passing. But how has it been and how will it continue to be, do you think, going forward, um, you know, based on the amount of dollars that the industry itself is spending on lobbying efforts? How is your organization really faring against such, uh, you know, extensive lobbying arms? You know, it's an interesting question because um, they, they have outgunned us all along. But right now, the industry is, is sort of doing a backdoor on us. They're not making a lot of comments publicly. We know that they're in the halls of Congress right now trying to convince them of a four-hour rule instead of mm. a three-hour rule. Because it, what we're hearing is that the industry, and we hear this through the media as well as through lobbyists, we're hearing that the industry is somewhat resigned that there is going to be a bill. 
but they're trying to have it affect as few flights as possible. So the longer the period of time on the tarmac, Mm -hmm. the less flights would be affected. So if they can convince House and Senate leadership that four hours is better uh, for them, and they pour enough money into those coffers, then, then we will have a further fight on our hands. Right now, consumer sentiment and business travel sentiment is that three hours is too long. Right. <laughs> you know, three hours is a doggone long time, and with Canada passing a one-hour bill, that, I mean, uh. they've, got no, they've already got 90 minutes in their Ministry of Transport, which our airlines have agreed to, and they're pushing for a one-hour bill, which is likely to pass. European Union has rigid regulations for flight delays of two hours or more where you get cash compensation. So we're so far behind in terms of our care of the airline passenger. Uh, You know, it's time for us to come into the 21st century and start taking care of the health, safety, well-being, and dignity of airline passengers. Uh, Indeed. So here's where we are, you know, and and right now, because of what happened uh, over the last couple months with these strandings, our voice has gotten so much larger because we actually document all of the strandings that happen, and we were able to say, yes, Rochester was horrible, New York was horrible, but there were 278 of those horrible events in June. There were oh. 164 of them documented by the government in July. So th- these are not one-off situations. There are a lot more of these happening I think since the beginning, we've figured over 300,000 people, about 344,000 people from January of 07 to the end of May of 09, 344,000 people have been stuck somewhere in the U.S. on the tarmac from three to eight or even 10 hours. Unbelievable. That's government documentation. And it excludes international flights. And it excludes those code share flights that are the tiny little airlines. Mm-hmm. Getting half the picture with the government data. Now, do you think part of that, uh, part of these 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 delays? And honestly, I don't understand the Continental Express flight uh, uh, issue. You know, when they are sitting on the tarmac right outside of a gate. But um, in any event, do you think part of these issues um, are deal uh, happen because of perhaps um, some of the pilot compensation? Uh, rules and regulations, and maybe Ian, you can you can, you know, add add to that or, or help address that. I'm that question. Yeah, that's a great question. Rather unfortunately, I do believe it had to do with pilot compensation because when I listened to those audio transcripts, even though the country who heard, you know, the U.S. citizens that heard those tapes thought, oh, the pilot begged. Well, the pilot sort of begged, but th- that pilot is a domestic pilot. She flies short-haul flights for a small carrier, and she had to know that the law does not require domestic airline passengers to go through TSA <laughs> when they get off a plane. And she mm-hmm. never argued that. So, and ironically, when she did pull into a gate at 10 a.m. or at 8 a.m. or 6 a.m., whatever time it was when they pulled in, I think it was 6, that was exactly the minute her pay stopped. And that was uh-huh. exactly the mm-hmm. flight attendant's pay stopped. So uh-huh. I, I definitely am suspicious that that played a factor, and we know it's played a factor in a lot of these, in a lot of these stranding events. And that it's an unfortunate side effect of the pilots and the flight attendants having negotiated their contracts after nine one one and given up 
so much that they are only paid if the emergency brake is off and they're out on the tarmac. Mm-hmm. And Kate, that's a, a point that I know we have talked about before with these uh, performance issues in the labor contracts for pilots because at certain airlines, uh, they're paid for hard flying. So when the plane is up in the air, that's that's when the flight crews and the pilots are getting paid. But with many of the legacy carriers, if not most of them, they get paid at break release point. That's when uh, the plane pushes back from the gate. So there's never really an incentive to get that plane in the air to do that hard flying. So right. it doesn't cost them anything. And that kind of brings me back to this issue as to whether or not the issue as to the airlines being able to afford additional regulation. There's already a lot of regulation on the airline industry. They pay a lot of taxes. And then to have a passenger's bill of rights on top of everything else in this great recession era, how do you feel about that argument that a lot in the industry are making? Well, the industry, first of all, I can give you an example of an airport, Dallas-Fort Worth, where Jim Kreitz, the vice president, has actually already gotten an agreement from all the airlines to allow their passengers off at three hours, and it's been working. Mm-hmm. And it's costing them less money in crew hours, in mm-hmm. gas, and he's figured out a safe dock system like they use in Europe so that they can move the plane in lightning and don't have to have folks on the ramp, which also saves the airlines money. So it's a big fallacy that this is going to cost them money. The place it's going to cost them any money is in New York if they have to de-peak those hours. If they have to de-peak between 6 and 8 a.m. so that they're not pushing people back and sitting them as they do every single day um, in New York because they can't get that many flights off the ground, I promise you that they will supply the demand by moving either into those slots in the middle of the day where they are not at capacity or by moving to Stewart where the the Port Authority has already purchased slots and they're ready for some of that overflow to come over there. And there are going to be many ways the airlines can take care of this. There may be a few bumps uh, initially, but it's an invalid point that they're making that this is going to cost them more money. The, it's, what it is is the relationship between congestion costs being passed on to the passenger or the airline not being able to warehouse you and your money out in planes. And, you know, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's all a money conversation to them. Right. And the Port Authority in New York did an evaluation of, of, of what the flight delays cost just to people in New York, and they came up with $250 million a year. That's mm. what it's costing the public <laughs> just in New York airspace. So the second thing you brought up are the taxes. And by the way, that is a background conversation for our group that we would like to fight to get some of those taxes reduced or removed because that's a mm-hmm. consumer issue as well as an airline issue. Mm-hmm. We believe that they are being overtaxed. We believe that some of the regulations in place don't need to be there. But this particular regulation we're pushing for is a basic human standards regulation. This is about a smart piece of regulation that will have a de minimis impact on them financially. And it's something that they will be able to supply the side of. If the demand is really there between 6 and 8 in the morning out of these congested airports. But at the same time, you know, at what point do you draw the line on taking care of people? and not putting them at risk physically for blood clots and exposing them to all kinds of different, you know, possible side effects. 
Right. And, and, and which raises a question for me. And uh, we're, we're talking to Kate Hanai, uh, founder of the Coalition for an Airline Passengers Bill of Rights. Kate, there, I understand, are two, uh, two one bill it has two uh, different um I guess remedies. Uh, one being that passengers have the right to deplane after three hours on the tarmac. Another uh, that gives such a right after excessive or substantial delays, which which <laughs> would be determined by the airline. And I wanted to ask you in the 30, uh, 60 seconds we have left, what? How do you define or who defines excessive or substantial delays? Well, isn't that interesting? No one. It is. Uh-huh. No defines it. The DOT doesn't know how to define it. When I was on the task force, I begged for any airline to come out with what they thought an excessive delay was, and no one would. And that's something that we've asked the House of Representatives over and over again. Can you just tell us what an excessive delay is? And finally, I said, well, how long would you be willing to sit? And there's no one that wants to sit more than three hours out on the tarmac. They think most people think that's an excruciatingly long amount of time for a domestic flight, especially a lot of these puddle jumpers that are going on an hour flight. Right. Sit for three, four hours every day in New York. Uh, right. Because, and yeah. So. And, and when, when you have overflowing toilets and no water or food, um, three hours, I think, is excessive. And um, finally, just real quickly, can you share with us your, your website address? Because you know, we want our listeners, uh, I know there's listeners out here who want to get involved, who want to support your efforts to, to get a reasonable bill passed. Yes. yes. Uh, the website is flyersrights.org, which is our new name, by the way. We, we have trans transitioned over to Flyers Rights, F-L-Y-E-R-S-R-I-G-H-T-S dot org. We have a toll-free hotline. We help people for free with any airline-related issue. It's 1-877-359-3776. And uh, right now, we want everyone that is listening to this program to reach out to five of their best friends and include themselves in calling their senator and asking them to support the three-hour maximum on the tarmac and get this bill to the floor. All right, Kate, we're going to have to leave it there, and we thank you for being with us today, and uh, best of luck in this uh, battle with, uh, with uh, the Congress, the legislature, and so forth, and finally getting some minimum standards set for our airline passengers. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Indeed. When we come back, we're going to uh, talk to Libby Gill, who's going to take us on a journey through traveling, hopefully, and uh, just a reminder to everyone, if we'll be back with Libby... Right after this, you're listening to the Traveling On Radio Show. Where can you book all of your travel needs at the best price? Purchase the latest travel gear and get the most current and comprehensive travel news and information? Travelinon.com. That's travelin-on.com. Whether you're a seasoned traveler, novice, or whether you're planning a long trip or looking for a weekend getaway, travelinon.com as the tools to complete your travel plans. Go to TravelInOn.com. That's TravelIn-On.com, the traveler's best resource. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert, to spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about, to teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? 
To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. This is President Barack Obama. In the story of America, the greatest chapters are moments of challenge, when we see people serving their country and one another, volunteers who step forward into hospital corridors and church basements, along levees and fire lines. And the next chapter is yours to help write. Sign up to volunteer at usaservice.org. That's usaservice.org. Let's renew America together. A message from Renew America Together, brought to you by the Ad Council. This is the Traveling On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Well, hello, everybody. I hope you're, uh, thank you for staying with us. And uh, we look forward to taking you on a different journey in our next segment. An entertainment industry veteran, Libby Gill, spent 15 years heading public relations and corporate communications at Universal Studios, Sony Pictures Entertainment, and Turner Broadcasting. She was also the branding brain behind the launch of the Dr. Phil show. And Libby is now an internationally respected executive coach, speaker, and I will say personally for Ian and I, branding expert and best-selling author and our very, very good friend. And she's joining uh, traveling on today to talk about her book, Traveling Hopefully, How to Lose Your Family Baggage and Jumpstart Your Life. Libby, welcome to Traveling On. Thank you, Tanya. So nice to be here. Hello, Ian, too. Hey, Libby. Good <laughs> to have you here. Absolutely. And you know, I, you know tr- your book, Traveling Hopefully, is a title that resonates very much with us. One, because we define travel very broadly, um, but two, because within your book, you use a lot of travel metaphors in the book. Tell us a little bit about traveling, hopefully. What does that mean? Because you define it several different ways in the book. Right. Well, it, it actually, the title came from a quote that I encountered when I was in grad school thinking I would be a therapist, which I didn't become. And one of the quotes that I encountered in some of my reading was a Robert Louis Stevenson quote where he said, to travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive. And it's kind of the, it's the journey, not the destination. I I liked his spin on it a little bit better, but it really stuck with me through the years. And when it came time to write this book, which was essentially about how do you get past the sort of negative experience and negative baggage, the baggage of the past and let it go, to me, that, that great, the travel inward is, is as important as the travel outward. And it was really the inspiration for the title. And, and I do think that travel is one of the great metaphors of life. It's about you know, getting from point A to point B. It's about who you encounter along the way. It's about how it transforms you and changes you and, and how you, in turn, change the other people that you encounter on your journey. So it, it made imminent sense for me to something about being hopeful and and regaining who you are and getting to know yourself and others better was, was all about the journey. Now, Libby, uh, very instrumental there. You mentioned about finding yourself or kind of regaining that lost, lost self. And talk to us about how that played out in terms of writing this book and what it helped you to kind of put in perspective about uh, your life and take it to the next level. Sure. Well, I got to this point where my life looked looked really good from the outside, and, and I think a number of people have experienced something like this, that I had a really great job and, and family and a nice home, and it just, 
things were not feeling right. I was, feel, I was really feeling crushed by the corporate world, and I, and I had to come to grips with that and look at the fact that I had worked really hard to end up somewhere I didn't want to be. And it was kind of like I'd taken that path, to stick to our travel metaphors, and it, and it was the wrong direction. And now how do I regroup? Do I let go of what I've worked for and gained? Do I, can I change course? Can I find a, a detour that's going to get me on this better path? And I, I ultimately decided that it was time to start my own business, to get out into the world in, in some different ways and, and to try some new experiences. But that required a, a looking back at past journeys. It's sort of examining, as I sometimes say, you have to dissect the past to direct the future. So I really looked at my own sort of self-belief system, the, the journey that I'd taken so far that had led me to where I was, and, and what elements of that no longer served me, and began mm-hmm. to kind of unravel some of those messages and find a, find a new way of being in the world. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Libby Gill, author of Traveling Hopefully, How to Lose Your Family Baggage and Jumpstart Your Life. Libby, kind of circling back to some of the, the travel metaphors and just your own experience, when I was going through your book, I noticed that uh, your first epiphany uh, came actually as a result of a, a trip you took to Paris, London and Paris, I believe. Yeah. And, and I think that's happened to you a couple of times. And everyone I've, I've spoken to, uh, even as recently as this morning, uh, has spoken about how travel has changed them in some way when you're outside of your, your element, when you're outside of your, uh, I guess, comfort zone, for lack of a better, mm-hmm. better term. Um, it, 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 it forces you to really pause and, and think about it. Uh, where you are, your life, and, and it kind of uh, encourages introspection. Would you, would you say that that had happened to you as well throughout the course of your life? Oh, definitely. And, and there are certainly those people who, including some of my family members, who live in that sort of 30-mile radius, and they're very happy to stay there. I could never fathom life that way. I, mean, from the, I can remember from the time I was probably... Eight or ten years old, uh, fantasizing about all the places I wanted to live and go and see. And even as a as a kid, as a teenager, I went to live after my parents divorced. I went to live with my dad in Japan and went to high school there. And then later, as a as a young adult, went to Paris and London, and then and traveled on my own. And now I've taken my kids to Europe. And as teenagers, and we did a we did a home exchange with a family, so we could sort of get in the shoes of what it was like to be in another neighborhood, not just in a hotel, but to we stayed in a, a condo in a little suburb of Copenhagen. And uh, it was me, mom, and two boys, and I traded with another single mom with two boys who, who came here and lived in my house in Los Angeles. But those are those pivotal moments where you see yourself in this context of a much greater world and. It does two things. It sort of humbles you. You're not so important. There's this whole thriving world outside your doorstep. And also, it, it at the same time, it kind of empowers you with this sense of there's this great adventure out there. If I'll just open up my eyes or get on a plane or a boat or take the time to talk to people. And it's, I, just, I can't imagine life without travel. And it, it always staggers me when people say they haven't really been anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, they're just Ditto. missing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, huh? How could that? Be? <laughs> I, and even and I guess I instilled that in my children because they've been they had been all through Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, Hawaii, 
but really had, especially my older son, just the absolute wanderlust, and, and they wanted to go uh, to Europe. So I thought, well, what's the, the most economical way to take them and really kind of see things on the ground? So we did that home swap and went to Copenhagen, but we also went to Berlin and Amsterdam and Stockholm, and they really got, in, in just over three weeks, a really great look around. And then their dad took them this year to Paris and London. Mm-hmm. So it's like my kids are 18 and 15, and I just feel like, you know, it was even when you know, there wasn't a lot of money coming in, it was, this is really important. I choose to spend my money on that over many other things because it just it gives you a world perspective that you can't have otherwise. Yeah, and, and I think that is so important in this day and age when we uh, hear the bad headlines, the news stories that just make us wonder, what are we doing here? What's, what's going on here? And I think to get out and see other parts of this planet, other parts of this world really help to give us the kind of perspective we sometimes need and even sometimes to get away, as Tanya and I just did recently when we went to Alaska mm-hmm. and had no communication a uh, cell phone, internet, email for an entire week. Can I just and, say uh, It was transformative. <laughs> Sounds like heaven to me. Yes, yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, um, you know, in your book, you have several chapters again, uh, Life in the Lonely Castle, Trail of Tears, and Traveling Hopefully Roadmap. When I was reading that last chapter, actually, Traveling Hopefully Roadmap, one of the things that, uh, one of the quotes that came out for me is, um, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. I love that quote. I don't know who wrote it, but it's it's one of my, my mantras. And you have a four-step process, what people should do to create their own Traveling Hopefully Roadmap. Can you kind of take us through a couple of those steps real quickly? Sure. The first thing to do is, is, as I mentioned before, you've got to look back. You've got to really sort of dissect the past and see what, where, how'd you get to this point? How'd you get where you are today? And secondly, you want to really begin to look at what's critical for you. What's the most important thing in your life now? It's really creating a vision for where you want to go. And then it's a process of beginning to connect the dots so that you, you, you link that vision with the action steps you're taking. I, I, that's what I did with the travel when I realized I, I hadn't traveled internationally for several years and I was really missing it. And it was when the economy was starting to die. And I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I really going to... International travel is really important. My mm-hmm. kids want to travel. We did the home swap and I also started speaking on cruise ships, which my children, again, prompted me to do. <laughs> I get a lovely working vacation. So it's how do, how do I fulfill that vision? And then really looking at what no longer serves me, what, what's on the path behind me that I can leave behind that I don't need to take with me on the journey any further. And that's truly the journey about getting over baggage and, and leaving, those, the, leaving the past where it belongs. And it, it really requires that you, you look at what's there. What are you taking with you? What are those emotional relics that you're hanging on to? And is it time to shed them? Is it time to, you know, lighten the baggage and go from the steamer trunk down to the little handy backpack that you can, you know, put in the overhead? And we just want to remind everyone, uh, you're listening to the Traveling On Radio Show with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Libby, you've transitioned from corporate America now into being a best-selling author and business coaching and helping small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and even large enterprises 
find their voice and find find their target and and in many ways that kind of alludes to having some goals and even having having a plan or having a roadmap to kind of reach a destination but so often uh, a lot of the great journeys that we take aren't necessarily mapped out and how would you help our listeners kind of reconcile needing to plan versus needing to just journey and perhaps wander without so much of a plan, but just a sense as to this is the direction that I need to go. Well, Ian, what a perfect question, because that just happens to be exactly what my new book is about. You ah. is about that process. And what I've, I've really looked at people over this last decade where I've been coaching, and what is it that propels some people so quickly, and why do others get mired in what really shouldn't or seems like it shouldn't be holding them back. What's the, what can kind of throw that switch and help them get past their own fears and doubts? And I, I kind of distilled it down to a three-step process that I call clarify, simplify, and execute. And it is, it's really that simple that first you clarify the vision. What is it that you're seeking? What are you looking for in your life? It could be in your business, in your personal life, in all of those things. So first, really get that really clear, focused, gut-level picture that you can see in your head and and have a a really visceral connection to. And once you've clarified the vision, then it's time to simplify the route, simplify the most direct path to reach that vision, to realize that and make it real. And that means throwing out all the extraneous stuff, getting past your own excuses, and, and just continuing on a very straight line, you know, it's like the as the crow flies, the straightest mm-hmm. line to reach that. And finally, executing your path with just rigorous accountability structures. You've got to continue, even when life throws curveballs at you and you get derailed, it's getting right back on a plan that you can execute towards measurable milestones so that you're very clear on where the path is supposed to take you and, and when and if you reach that goal. Some people just can't reach it because they don't have anything to measure. Well, and I think, you know, in reading through Traveling Hopefully, um, one of the, the, the messages that you uh, um, articulate in the book is not to be afraid of making a mistake, not to be afraid of failure, particularly, you know, when you're creating your road uh, roadmap and traveling down that road. And I think that um, fear in, it, in and of itself is uh, the element that really keeps people stuck where they are and, and it, you know, from going forward. Um, and I know your book, you mentioned your new book, uh, Getting Unstuck. You Unstuck, right. You're getting you unstuck. Okay. <laughs> and that is, that's out now, Libby? Just coming out now and it's on Amazon now. Yes. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I think it's a wonderful compliment to uh, your book, Traveling Hopefully, uh, as well. I think Traveling Hopefully perhaps gives you the foundation to work with. Getting unstuck uh, helps you when you do get stuck as you're going down that, that Traveling Hopefully roadmap mm-hmm. and, uh, and um, you know, towards your, your goal. One of the other things that I really loved uh, reading in your book, Traveling Hopefully, is um, the section, and I couldn't find it before the show, but you talked about mantras, creating a mantra, and your former assistant had a great one um, that you, you shared, dignity and grace and a smile on your face. And just the sound of that makes a smile, uh, makes me smile. I love that. Can you, can you tell us what your mantra is? 
You know what's so funny, Tanya? It is sitting right here on my, my blackboard <laughs> today with a little happy face uh, from my old assistant, Michaela, from years ago. <laughs> Mine is, um, now this will sound funny, so you gotta, you got to let me go with it here for a second, but I, there are times when I see myself and others just spinning my wheels and working so hard and, and, um, and almost creating a little bit too much stress and struggle, and I have to remind myself to let that go and, and, you know, it sounds a little cliche, but to be in the moment and to roll with it a little bit more. So I will, there are two things I'll say. One is don't push the river, it flows by itself. <laughs> Which is the title of your book or a chapter. In the- chapter. And the other one that I use when I really want to just wind it down and let it go is maximum enthusiasm, minimum effort. Ugh. Be excited about what you're doing and enjoy it, but don't struggle or challenge yourself over it every second of the day. That's a great one. Can I adopt that one, too? Yes. I'll, every type A. You know, when I'll go out and speak, <laughs> any type A people in the house, and every, every hand shoots up. <laughs> yeah, it's, remember, it's about the enthusiasm and the joyfulness you bring, but it's not always about effort, meaning struggle and stress and, you know, all that kind of rest that comes with it. Mm. Well, what a wonderful journey you've had, Livian. You know, one of the other things that I, I noticed about your your book, uh, Traveling Hopefully, is that you are very transparent. Your stories, this is a very powerful book, and I really want our audience to, to understand how powerful this is. When you you're raw. I mean, you basically, um, you're very vulnerable. The, the stories that you share and to see you kind of work through these things on the pages of your book uh, sends a very powerful message. And I truly appreciate you sharing your story uh, in, in, in such an, an honest uh, way with me. And uh, I'm, I'm creating my roadmap actually, as we, as we speak now, well, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, because we're, we're working with you and uh, looking forward to your next book, Getting Unstuck. And I'm sure both books can also be found on your website. Is that correct? They can, absolutely, or on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And your website address for our listening audience is? LibbyGill.com. Wonderful. And that's L-I-B-B-Y-G-I-L-L.com. Libby Gill is an executive coach, branding expert, and the author of Traveling Hopefully, How to Lose Your Family Baggage and Jumpstart Your Life. And she has a new book just out on the shelves on the Amazon.com shelves entitled Getting You Unstuck. Thank you for joining us today, Libby. My pleasure. Thanks, Libby. (laughs) Bye, Antonia. Bye-bye. Stay with us because Tokyo-based international action film star Chuck Johnson joins us next to talk about his upcoming film projects and his life in Japan. So we'll see you on the other side of this break. Whether you're traveling by plane, train, or automobile, Make TravelinOn.com your first stop. At TravelinOn.com, that's TravelIn-On.com, you can get current travel news and information, buy the latest travel book, and find those great travel bargains. Visit TravelinOn.com, your premier source for all things travel. That's TravelIn-On.com, and make sure to sign up for email specials and tune into the Travelin' On radio show each week for a chance to win some great travel prizes. 
Every hour of every day, an American is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. MS typically strikes between the ages of 16 and 50 when people are building careers and raising families. Today, there is no known cause or cure for MS. To learn more about this unpredictable disease, to volunteer, or to make a contribution to this important mission, please call 1-800-FIGHT-MS. You can make a difference by helping us stop this devastating disease. Please call one 800 Fight MS today. Thank you. Whether you're traveling by plane, train, or automobile, make TravelingOn.com your first stop. At TravelingOn.com, that's TravelIn-On.com, you can get current travel news and information, buy the latest travel book, and find those great travel bargains. Visit TravelingOn.com, your premier source for all things travel. That's travelin-on.com. And make sure to sign up for email specials and tune into the Travel and On radio show each week for a chance to win some great travel prizes. Looking for the latest travel book, the hottest item in travel gear and clothing? Or are you researching a destination or looking into the most current travel regulations or warnings? If so, visit travelinon.com, your one stop shop for travel resources. At travelinon.com, that's travelin-on.com, you can get the latest travel news and information and shop for all of your travel needs. Travelinon.com is your premier source for all things travel. That's travelin-on.com. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Well, he moved early. That's going to draw the yellow flag. Offsides, number 72, five yard. Check out this fan leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl. Provided as a public service by the station at Team Coalition. Now, more of the Traveling On Radio Show. And welcome back to the Traveling On Radio Show. Ian Fitzpatrick here along with Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I uh, thought that was a great segment as, as we spoke to Libby about traveling hopefully and uh, taking that different path, so to speak. Well, we've, uh, we've done it. Oh, we've yeah. Done it with our show. Very. And leaving the field of law and... <laughs> You know, working through those those voices uh, that that uh, those negative voices, you know, that we we've we've heard uh, absolutely, and uh, you know, not believing them and going forward. And I think our our next guest is probably a prime example of the same. He is indeed. And before we come to him, I just want to let everyone know we've had some changes on the Traveling on Radio show. And so, if you want to find us, you go to Travel in Radio. Hopefully that name is a little easier for you to find and and search and so forth. And as Tanya said, our next guest, uh, Chuck Johnson, he's an action film star based out of Tokyo. And he's the first African-American to make an international name for himself in the Japanese action film industry. And one of the first Americans to be trained extensively in Japanese theatrical swordplay, which we 
We'll learn more about from him. Chuck has appeared in such films as Godzilla, Final Wars, Death Trap, and Geki Rangers. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And a multitude of TV and film and action roles in Japan. And he joins us right now on the Traveling On Radio Show to talk about some upcoming film projects and his life in Japan. Chuck, welcome to Traveling On. How are you, my friend? I'm doing really good. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. And, uh, you know, uh, talk about transformative journeys. Your trip, your life in Japan, it, it, it started from a very humble place. You went over there to teach English, and lo and behold, you find yourself doing films as a, uh international action star over there. How does that happen? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty uh, interesting journey. And so originally, as you'd mentioned, I had come to Japan uh, as an English teacher, but uh, before that, I had actually lived in Korea as a Taekwondo player because I had, you know, a lot of big aspirations for going to the um, the 2004 Olympics for Taekwondo. So I'd done all this extensive Taekwondo training in Korea, and I'd also gone to Hong Kong and done martial arts training there and whatnot. So after arriving in Japan, you know, my martial arts background actually lent itself to at first bodyguarding for celebrities, which I got into almost by accident. Um, and then from there, I just kind of transitioned into actually doing action cinema. Hmm. Now, now, inquiring minds want to know, Chuck, who were some of the celebrities that you uh, you you guarded? Let's see. So, well, um, in working in security in Japan, I didn't work as their uh, you know their main bodyguard. I was a part of security details. So usually, when celebrities would come over, they'd bring their main bodyguard, and then they would also hire local bodyguards to work along with them. So I would be a part of a general team that was looking after that celebrity. And as a member of those teams, I'd worked for um, you know Orlando Bloom, Sylvester Stallone, Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, you know, at one point, I assisted with the security detail with Madonna. Um, just you so, know, a, a myriad of different people from Hollywood, and then also a few Korean celebrities and a few French celebrities as well. So we're talking A-list celebrities then, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Now, your journey to Japan started by teaching English, and uh, for for people over here stateside, talk about what that entails uh, in, in terms of, of, of going abroad and wanting to teach English uh, to those who are, who are excited to learn a very powerful language, kind of the language of commerce today and, and so forth. How did that journey begin for you, Chuck? So, well, I think for people um, interested in teaching English, I, I really think that's what's one of the you know, greatest advantages of being an American, or not just even an American, but just being a native English speaker, is that actually gives you an avenue to travel not just to Japan or to Korea, but basically almost anywhere in the world. You know, I mean, you could go to you know, a lot of different places in Europe. You could go to a lot of places in Africa. You can go all over Asia. Um, Japan is, is one of the kind of premier choices for English teaching. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's fascinating. A lot of people think that it would be really difficult because, uh, you know, the, a lot of the people that you're working with uh, wouldn't be able to speak a word of, of English, and then you wouldn't be able to speak a word of Japanese. But in actuality, most Japanese people in fact, all of them who've been through high school have already studied English for six years. You know, and it's the same in Korea. I'm guessing it's probably the same way in China. So they have a background in it. But, you know, after, you know, after studying it in school, they just don't use it because there's just not that many English speakers around. So for the most part, they just forget how to speak. So in going over as an English teacher, it's more or less your job simply to, to remind them how to speak. So you, 
more or less just teach them how to have conversation. So, you know, in that respect, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say anybody can do it because, you know, I mean, it is a skill. Um, but anybody can get into it relatively easily, particularly if you have a college degree. So, yeah, and I think, personally, I think it's it's a great way to travel. It's a great way to get around to a lot of different places. And, you know, there are people who turn it into a career out there. Um, well, you know, oh, go, I'm, go ahead. Please. No, go ahead, Chuck. No, I'm sorry. I think we have a, a caller uh, on the line, um, Ernest, uh, who oh, is a an old friend of yours uh, who has a question for you. Ernest, are you on the show with us? Chuck. Ern, what's up? <laughs> I thought... I just call in and say hi. I can't stay on very long, so I've got to jump for a meeting. But, you know, I saw your numbers. So I figured I'd dial in while you catch you while you're in the States, actually. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you. It's great to hear from you. Yeah, it's been a long time. But, um, yeah, so it's just good to talk to you. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, though. So. <laughs> okay, Aaron. Well, thanks for calling the Traveling on Radio Show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> How about that? You know, you can uh, you can connect with old friends on the Traveling On Radio Show, make so. new ones, and connect with uh, old ones. <laughs> he was actually a really good uh, taekwondo friend of mine. We trained together for several years when I was living in Michigan. So we uh-huh. go to tournaments together all the time. So. And if you're just joining us, we are talking to Chuck Johnson, an international uh, action film star based in uh, Tokyo, Japan. Now, Chuck, um, how long have you actually been in Japan? I've been in Japan for six years now. Okay. And, and, and I, I mean, I would imagine, well, I think you explained why you, you, you moved to Japan. And, and my first thought was, you know, as uh, perhaps maybe uh, going over as a, as a young person uh, training for Taekwondo, et cetera, um, why you chose a, a country that, doesn't speak English as a native, uh, uh, as their, you know, original language, a native language. Um, I, I'm sure that had to pose some challenges for you, but talk a little bit about some of the other challenges that, uh, that you've incurred in the last six years. Well, yeah, I think the language does present, um, it does present a challenge, but I think most people also kind of underestimate how smart they are in terms of the fact that I, I think most people are able to acquire a language a lot easier than, than they think they can. And usually when you go there, you know, I mean, if you're put into a, if you're put into a situation where um, you simply have to use it, you're simply going to learn it. As for myself, for my first few years of, of living in Japan, for my first four or five, you know, like I didn't actually speak or even study Japanese, um, but I was in a situation where once I started action training, you know, nobody spoke English anymore. So or as soon as I got out of the English teaching field, um, nobody spoke English anymore. So from there, it was simply a matter of learning it because I had to know it, and it simply came naturally. But um, in terms of other challenges, I think Japan does present some interesting challenges for larger people, you know, because um, on average, people are there are a little bit smaller. I'm at six foot two and about two hundred pounds. I don't necessarily consider myself to be a giant. And, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I wear a size 12 shoe, and most guys' shoes in Japan only go up to a size 10, you know. So I, I have to spend a lot more time looking for shoes than most people, you know. I mean, among other things, just at that size, and given the fact that I'm an athlete, you know, and I train four or five days a week, you know, mm-hmm. I, I eat twice as much as most people, you know. And then, of course, the diet's different, too, you know. In general, they eat a lot less meat than we do. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's, it's interesting, you know. I mean, you... 
you run into little things that you would think would be challenging, um, when the things that you wouldn't even think about. For example, like how to work the shower. You know, like I never thought that would be, that would be difficult, but they've got you know you walk into the shower and there's all these little switches and things, and everything is labeled in Japanese, and like you can't even figure out how to turn on the shower at times. <laughs> but then, you know, on the other side of the coin. You know, you look at the subway system in Tokyo, and there's like 50 lines, you know, and, and you think that it's absolutely impossible, but it's actually relatively simple to figure out. It's just a matter of, of just time and experience. It's just expensive. I remember from my, my own time being there for a little while. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty expensive. But at the same time, I think there's, you know, um, there's always a way, right? And I think even, you know, as myself, as an upcoming actor, you know, I've been I spent a fair amount of time not exactly, you know, being in a, a great financial position, but there's always a way to get by. You know, if nothing else, there's Costco, right? <laughs> and yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is it is pretty expensive, though. Now, Chuck, uh, you've, you've had to face a number of challenges, and literally you've uh, kicked the door in, <laughs> so to speak. And one of those really has been being an African-American in Japan, and that has posed some unique challenges, and it's also provided some unique opportunities. Kind of speak to uh, your experience there and how you've built some bridges over there and some of the things that you've learned. Yeah, I think I, I definitely have to agree that it's um, coming over as an African-American, you're in a really peculiar position. One, just because, you know, I mean, you're, you're less than, than 1% of the population, right? So you stand out a lot. You know, like I said, especially because of, of my size, I'm, I'm just bigger than everybody else. So walking along, like my head is above every, you know, most people or whatnot, or standing on the train, you know, I'm a good three or four inches taller than average. So, so we um, can't lose you in a crowd, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah, most of my Japanese friends don't really have a hard time finding me in pretty much anywhere we go. Um, but yeah, so in that respect, that the fact that you, you stand out, you know, in a lot of ways, if you're, if you're smart about it, it can get you into the door with a lot of things, you know, like, um, for example, you know, like with, um, with bodyguarding, you know, I mean, my, the fact that I'm, I'm big, I'm strong, and I came from a fighting background, that helped me get transitioned into bodyguarding relatively easily, whereas here in the States, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not that much bigger than average, you know, and for a bodyguard, I probably wouldn't be that big at all, you know, you see a lot of guys that are like 300 pounds or, you know, mm-hmm. six foot six, you know, so at six foot two, I wouldn't be that big, but over there I am. Mm-hmm. So, but, so that's, and you know, um, other examples are, for example, sports modeling, which is another thing I do, you know I mean? Like I get all kinds of work, you know, um, modeling for, you know, for example, like ASICs or sports authority and things like that. Um, playing bo- football players, basketball players and things like that. I get tons of work on TV, you know, as, as, as a TV bodyguard as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and so- that just comes simply because I'm different looking, but. On the other side of the coin, there's a lot of unique challenges to it, too. Of course, there's negative stereotypes, you know, about, um, about African-Americans or Africans in general. Um, you know, and oftentimes, you know, like aside from the sports roles, if I do get any kind of acting role, oftentimes it's not a particularly intelligent role, you know, or sometimes, you know, I get offered work that's somewhat stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been other times where... You know, if I, if in some kind of a sports contest where it would be me against some some Japanese player, you know, I would get set up to lose and things like that because obviously the crowd wants to see the the hometown champ win, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You know. 
Well, uh, Chuck, we have just a couple of minutes left, but I, I did want to talk about some of your uh, your recent work. And I know you have a, a, a business that actually taps back into your original job as an English teacher. Um, and uh, you have a, a, a some good news about a short film that you just did. Tell us about that in uh, uh, the next 60 seconds that we have left. Okay, the short film that I just did was called uh, Yashi. You could actually see the, the trailer on YouTube, if you look up Yashi trailer, it's Y-A-S-S-Y. Um, but it was a short film directed by our, um, uh, Shinichi Fujita, and the action director was Yuji Shimamoto, who's one of, the, one of the most prominent action directors in Japan, and I think internationally he's getting a, a really big name. He actually did his first Hollywood movie not too long ago. I think it was called Way of the Warrior. It's coming out next year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a, he directed a short film utilizing red cam, which is the same cameras that they use for a lot of the crazy slow motion effects in 300. And that short film has been, uh, it's got a lot of interest by um, a few studios in Hollywood as well as some big Japanese studios. And it looks like either way it's going to become a feature film next year. Um, and Shimamura-san is already, uh, you know, because of my, my performance in the, the trailer that he put together for it, he's already promised me a role in the film. I'm not exactly sure what kind of a role it's going to be or how big of a role or how small of a role, but I'll have a role in the film in any event. Um, beyond that, I just did a trilogy called Yakuza Hunter, <laughs> which is really interesting, where I was one of the bad guys. I actually got to play a Japanese Yakuza, obviously of foreign descent, and uh, you know, I got all Japanese-speaking lines and lots of action sequences. I, I, get, I managed to live all the way through the second part of the uh, part two of the trilogy, but unfortunately I died in the third, but you know, oh. second one, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chuck, Chuck, we we thank you. Uh, no, domo arigato for spending time today with us on the uh, Traveling On radio show. Chuck Johnson is an action film actor based out of Tokyo, Japan, and the first African American to rise to stardom in the Far East Asian action film industry. You've been listening to the Traveling On radio show today, and we look forward to communicating with you during the week on our social networks and uh, through our newsletters. And it's certainly been a pleasure to spend some travel time with you today. We're Tanya and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you again on the air next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, happy, happy travels. travels.